The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, so that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all people to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth by finishing the word that you gave me to do. So now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had in your presence before the world existed. I have made your name known to those whom you gave me from the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is given is from you. For the words that you gave to me, I have given to them, and they have received them, and know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am asking on their behalf. I am not asking on behalf of the world, but on behalf of those whom you gave me, because they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. And now I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them in your name that you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise you, Lord Christ. May only God's word be spoken, and only God's word be heard. Amen. Amen. There's a lot to celebrate this morning. This morning we begin with lifting up the story of Jesus' ascension. That moment when he withdrew, the risen Christ withdrew from the sight of the disciples and ascended into heaven. That he might fill all things and redeem all things and be present wherever we go in this beautiful world of ours. There Christ is. St. Augustine once said, Jesus ascended into heaven so that we might return to our hearts and there find him. So I think it's a wonderful thing that today we, in the context of the ascension, with this image of Christ filling all things and loving all things and redeeming all things, we also celebrate Earth Day. So I'm calling this sermon Ascending to Heaven on Earth Day. We get to have them both. We get to have them all. And heaven knows the earth needs our prayers. Today's a day to lift up our prayers for this beautiful planet of ours. Take, for example, I'll just pick one example of what we are facing right now. Climate change. We know that in the 1980s, more than half of the Arctic Ocean was covered with ice year-round. Then last summer, we watched the Arctic melt. And last September, maybe you remember, the entire Northwest Passage 
between the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans was ice-free for the first time in recorded history. Two weeks ago, NASA released its latest satellite data on the deteriorating condition of Arctic ice, and someone working with Greenpeace remarked, the rate of sea ice loss we're observing is much worse than even the most pessimistic projections led us to believe. Maybe you read that James Hansen, who is our leading climatologist, just issued what may be the most important scientific assessment of global warming in years. Hansen argues that significant greenhouse gas reductions must be made immediately. And I'm going to quote here. If, he says, if humanity wishes to preserve a planet similar to that on which civilization developed and to which life on Earth is adapted. We need, he says, to limit carbon concentrations in the atmosphere to under 350 parts per million. 350, that is the magic number. That is the number that represents Safety. That is the amount of CO2 that the atmosphere can tolerate if we're going to sustain life on Earth as you and I know it. 350. So what's the current amount of CO2 in the atmosphere? 385 and climbing. We have work to do. Global warming makes us anxious, and with good reason. Two years ago, when the reality of climate change finally broke into the popular media and into the consciousness of the American public, maybe you remember the cover of Time magazine, which was emblazoned with the headline, Be Worried, Be Very Worried. I am not an advocate of worry. But I must admit to thinking to myself that if fear was going to galvanize the American public to demand the urgent changes we need to make, then maybe fear was not such a bad thing. As I say, if you're not worried about climate change, then you haven't been paying attention. But fear can sustain us for only so long. And a steady diet of anxiety can erode the soul and cloud the mind and leave us helpless in a heap of despair. And besides, fear is not the gospel truth. Here on this Sunday after the Ascension, we hold fast to the love story that we find in the Bible. God so overflowed with love for God's creation, that God in Christ descended among us, descended into our depths, and finally into death itself. And then God in Christ gathered up all that he was and all that we are and carried everything back to the Father, the creator of all.
the ascension, Jesus' ongoing presence with us, can empower us to live into this challenging planetary time with, with courage and with hope. Two weeks ago, I flew to Seattle to take part in a national Episcopal conference entitled Healing Our Planet Earth. And in a stunning couple of talks about climate change, Catherine Jeffords Shorey, our presiding bishop, remarked that, quote, the partner of urgency is hope. And that sharing the work and sharing the dream always engenders hope. That's what brings us together every Sunday, to, to share the work, share the dream, and to engender the renewed flowering of hope. Now, you might think that fighting global warming is a very technical business that requires enormous skill and expertise. But in fact, many of the tools for stabilizing the climate are very ordinary and simple. If we want to rebuild this beautiful world of ours, if we want to be healers of planet Earth, we need a set of tools. And as it happens, I brought a toolkit with me. Toolkit. I don't know if I dare leave it up here. You can guess what the first thing is I'm going to show you. No surprise, right? Compact fluorescent light bulb. You know they last maybe ten times longer than regular incandescent bulbs, and they use only a quarter of the electricity. So they save both money and energy. And I wouldn't be surprised if by now your house and your workplace are full of these. And if they're not, I hope they will be very soon. And I suppose it's worth adding that no matter what kind of light bulb we use, the best way to save electricity is simply to turn the lights off when we're not in the room. If no one's in the room, why is the light on? Question to ponder. Next tool, this beauty is a sweater. In the winter and on chilly days when it's kind of raw outside, maybe like today, rather than cranking up that furnace, which is consuming fossil fuels, we can put on a sweater. We can keep the heat low in our houses and put on a sweater. We can, in the summer when it gets warm, we can not turn on the air conditioner. That's a great sucker up of electricity. We can leave it off or we can keep it to a much lower setting. Reduce carbon emissions. That's the plan. Here's a good one. Here's a tool. String this up between two trees and you've got an instant solar clothes dryer. Sun and wind will do the job for free. You know, a standard clothes dryer sucks up enormous amounts of energy, and quite a few of us in my parish at home, which is Grace Church in Amherst, have given up entirely on using clothes dryers. And 
I sometimes encourage my parishioners, if they have to, to put some duct tape over the door of the clothes dryer to make it, clothes dryer, to make it really clear to our households what the deal is here. Remember these? <laughs> Putting one foot in front of the other is a great way to walk the talk. You know, a hundred years ago, something like 99%, 99.9% of people got by without cars. They rode a bicycle, they used the train, they lived near their workplace, and they walked. So if you can, buy a fuel-efficient car, buy a, buy a hybrid if you can, if you have to drive. But we can save even more fuel simply by driving less. And I'm about to organize at our parish, they don't know this yet, a, a carpool Sunday. See if we can do it. This is another tool. It's a stainless steel bottle filled with water from the tap. You know, we got to, we've got to quit the bottled water habit. Americans now drink more than 30 billion single-serving bottles of water a year, an indulgence that consumes vast amounts of fossil fuels. And most plastic bottles never get recycled. So instead, we can carry a refillable stainless steel bottle. And when we feel that urge to grab bottled water. We can imagine that bottle being, this is a quarter full of oil. Actually, there should be more oil in it than this. Because that's what went into it in the course of the bottles being manufactured and shipped and chilled. So think about that. Last one. The bag itself, that's another tool. Whenever we bring reusable canvas bags with us when we shop, we don't have to make that impossible choice between paper or plastic. We can conserve both trees and fossil fuels. So it's important that we individuals do what we can in our household, in our workplace, but the scope of the challenge is so vast and the time for effective action so short, we also need to join hands and work together in larger groups. We need bold political action. We need to demand that our country join an international treaty within the next two years that cuts global warming pollution by 90% in developed countries and by more than half worldwide. We need to stop building coal-fired power plants that don't have the capacity to safely trap and store carbon dioxide. And we need to create millions of green energy jobs. Religious communities also have a part to play. Last year, Bishop Stephen Charleston, who's the president of Episcopal Divinity School in Cambridge, which is my, my seminary alma mater, and he's also, a, he's also a Native American elder, 
Last year he began to ask himself, what if, what if we could move beyond particular parishes taking individual action here and there to reduce their carbon footprint? What if not just a handful of Episcopal churches, but all Episcopal churches took big strides toward energy conservation and efficiency? What if the national leadership of the Episcopal Church made a commitment to cut in half within 10 years the carbon footprint of every facility it maintains, not just its churches, but also its camps and schools and offices and seminaries? And not only that, what if the top leadership of every faith tradition across the country, Protestant and Catholic, Jewish and Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist? What if every national religious community in the United States made the same commitment to reduce its emissions and work together on a single unified effort to stop global warming? Thus was born the Genesis Covenant, which was officially launched in Seattle two weeks ago. I'm on the steering committee of the Genesis Covenant, and if you go to genesiscovenant.org, you can read how it works and how you can help bring it to life. And, you know, we're, we're counting on your help because the Genesis Covenant is a completely grassroots movement with minimal organizational structure. We're praying that the Holy Spirit, the risen and ascended Christ, will take hold of this moment to breathe new life into us and to give us energy for action. For if there were ever a time to bear witness to our faith, now would be the time. If there ever were a moment to hold fast to our vision of a world in which human beings live in right relationship with each other and with our fellow creatures, now would be the time. Now is the time, as theologian Sally McFaig said at that conference in Seattle, to recognize that the world is not a hotel, but our home. When we visit a hotel, we, we may feel entitled to use copious amounts of hot water, to throw towels on the floor, to use and discard everything in sight, and then we head off to the next hotel. In short, we exercise what she calls the Kleenex perspective on the world. But when we realize that the earth, in fact, is our home, that God created it and loves every inch of it and entrusted it to our care, then everything changes. We realize that we live here. We live here. We belong here. We can no longer tolerate a lifestyle that exhausts the planet's resources and that treats land, sea, and sky alike as receptacles for waste. I don't know if human beings will act quickly enough to prevent the most catastrophic effects of climate change, but I can't think of a mission more inspiring than to stand up for life on this planet.
What you and I need to create is the most diverse, bold, visionary, wide-ranging, powerful, hope-filled, hands-on, feet-on-the-ground, shoulder-to-the-wheel social movement that humanity has ever seen. As the environmentalist Bill McGibbon likes to say, it was for times like these that the church was born. I heard another climate activist say something that I want to pass along to you. And I'll close with this. We want to be able to say to our children and to our children's children, I give you polar bears. I give you glaciers. I give you coral reefs. I give you ice shelves as big as a continent. I give you moderate weather. I give you a stable climate. Thank you. All of you, thank you, thank you, thank you for sharing this mission with me. Amen.